Thank you for downloading this podcast from BJOG. Hi, my name is Aris Papajoju. I'm a deputy editor-in-chief of BJOG, and I'd like to welcome you to this themed issue in fetal medicine. As a trainee, the fascination of being able to observe early human development played a big part in my decision to go into the field of maternal fetal medicine. This enthusiasm was helped by clinicians and researchers with huge charisma and talent who still lead the way in the diagnosis and even treatment of babies before birth, in how to best prepare for postnatal management, in how to communicate difficult decisions to parents. Fetal medicine has always been closely linked to technological advances, and in my experience, most specialists in the field are early adopters of new technology. Of course, these include improvements in fetal imaging and ultrasound, but also rapid developments in genomics and in the kind of surgical equipment and know-how required for delicate intrauterine procedures. Some of the greatest advances, however, revolve around the ability to use these techniques to improve our understanding of pregnancy-related conditions. Imaging and other biomarkers have proven powerful tools to understand the physiology, etiopathogenesis and natural history, not only of congenital fetal abnormalities, but also of conditions that may put a healthy pregnancy outcome at risk, such as preeclampsia, poor placental function, impaired glucose tolerance, preterm birth, and stillbirth. Over 150 articles were submitted to this BJOC-themed issue. Their wide range and variety demonstrates how this field has advanced in many areas and is of huge relevance to the entire care pathway. In many settings, screening for chromosomal abnormalities using a combination of maternal age, fetal nuchal translucency, maternal serum HCG and PAPE remains a standard of care. It's also known that screening using cell-free DNA in the maternal circulation allows very accurate prenatal screening for fetal trisomies. And in their paper, Guy and colleagues show that secondary screening using this technology forms the basis of an effective strategy in a public health setting. I think there is little doubt that we will move to primary screening for chromosomal abnormalities based on cell-free DNA in the future once the rapidly declining price crosses a cost-effectiveness threshold. The accompanying mini-commentary by Howard Cuckle explains these different screening models. In addition, there is a prospect of using such technology to screen for genetic disorders, such as beta-thalassemia, and this is discussed in the article by Lee and colleagues. Genomics are, of course, also relevant after invasive prenatal diagnosis. The articles by Mardi and colleagues on variants of unknown significance in prenatal microarrays and the review by Professor Kilby on the role of next-generation sequencing provide excellent insights into the advances made in this area. Screening for preeclampsia is another really important aspect of early pregnancy screening. Randomized trial evidence, published by Rolnick and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017, shows that low-dose aspirin in women at high risk results in a lower incidence of preterm preeclampsia than placebo. An important study of implementation in this themed issue by Guy and colleagues has shown that this translates into clinical effective reductions on preeclampsia in a major London teaching hospital. Nevertheless, 
Despite early screening and treatment, preeclampsia will continue to occur and the clinical value of angiogenic factors in established disease is assessed in the study of Peguero et al. Routine prenatal screening started many years ago with measurement of alpha-fetoprotein for the detection of neural tube defects. In most settings, screening for this condition has been replaced by a routine detailed ultrasound assessment in the second trimester using several signs of neural tube defects in the first instance and direct visualization of the spine at around 20 weeks. The paper by Marseille and colleagues builds on our understanding of the specific imaging findings that can point to earlier diagnosis of spina bifida and other fetal brain abnormalities too in the first trimester. A number of papers examine not just imaging in this condition, but also describe intrauterine fetal therapy. The benefits of such prenatal treatment were first shown in the MOMS trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, and we have papers from a number of centers of excellence around the world that continue to work and prognosticate using imaging, and to describe the latest advances in fetal surgery, surely one of the most exciting areas of medicine, and the effect of different surgical approaches too. Ultrasound in late pregnancy has been shown to be of value in reducing adverse perinatal outcomes in high-risk populations. But the question of whether universal late pregnancy ultrasound is of value in unselected population remains a matter of intense debate. One aim of such late screening is to identify those pregnancies that are at risk of the most devastating outcome, stillbirth. Gordon Smith provides an elegant review explaining why the assertion that routine late pregnancy ultrasound in low-risk and unselected populations does not confer benefit on the mother or baby is likely to be inaccurate. The correct interpretation of existing data is that we do not know whether universal ultrasound confers benefits on the mother or baby. There's no doubt that parameters other than fetal growth, such as Doppler, biochemical or other functional assessment of the placental function, and markers of fetal nutrition and reserve are important, and these are being investigated. One of these is a cerebral placental ratio, or CPR, which is a manifestation of centralization or brain sparing of fetal blood flow. The meta-analysis of individual participant data is mandatory reading for anyone with an interest in this area. But please also look at the important mini-commentaries that accompany these pa the, the, the paper. These highlight that the data included in the meta-analysis is not definitive proof of the lack of utility of this marker. In addition, the papers by Son and colleagues on the relevance of fetal anomalies in relation to stillbirth, and by Townsend and colleagues on what prognostic variables are already available in the literature, complete this series of papers on stillbirth prediction. I really wanted to thank uh, hugely all those uh, investigators and researchers who have contributed to this issue with research or state-of-the-art reviews, and also those who've written commentaries and debates. I think we've got an outstanding theme issue here. Finally, and not least, of course, I want to thank all the special editors, uh, fetal medicine editors of the journal, and our guest editor, Mike Belford, who have contributed, as well as all our referees. 
I hope you enjoy the special issue and agree with me that this is really a burgeoning field with rapid advances. And I look forward to continuing to receive manuscript in this area. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from BJOG. We have been reporting the best research in women's health since 1902. We are keen to hear your views. Tweet us at BJOG Tweets. You can find more podcasts at www.bjog.org.